0: Heavenly Father, we thank you just for the privilege it is to be able to uh, worship together, to be able to come to your eternal throne, uh, to know that though we are indeed sinners by nature, you have so transformed us that we have the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, which covers us. And so even now, as we look at your word, as we look at your revelation, your truth to us as your people, we pray for humility, we pray for clarity And that you would encourage us as your people to live more and more faithfully through the teaching of your word. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you guys have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open it up to the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at just two verses this morning, verse 24 and verse 25, a a very well-known passage, Hebrews 10, 24, uh, and 25. 25. As we begin, I was just thinking about what's been happening in this last week. And I think a lot of us know that a lot was going on and some very important events as well. And on Wednesday night, I was unable to watch this event live because we had our worship Wednesday time, which many of us were able to join. But on that same evening was what was known as the vice presidential debates. It was a very important evening. Uh, many uh, things were discussed, many events were happening, and it, w- it was a very stately time. It was a very important and dignified event, talking about the future of who we are as people, right? What do we value as a country, and what do we deem as important? But one of the headlines that really uh, got the most media attention happened to do with a two-minute segment of that debate when a fly landed on the vice president, Right, And I know it was a thing where most of us were wanting to be very intent and focusing on what was happening. But what happened all across social media, all across the internet, was that for a two-minute period, this fly did not move. Right, And a lot of things were said about the event. But I think it was a reminder for us that unexpected situations like that bring out things in us that we don't naturally see. It's the unexpected that helps us realize certain aspects of ourselves and who we are and and what we do and value that don't come up until the unexpected comes. And many of you are familiar with Al Mola, the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, and I loved how he was commenting just on how we as American, we as society, responded to those two minutes there. And he said this, no matter how much we may prize our powers of concentration and intellectual discipline, The moment a fly ends up on someone's head, we can't help but stare at it. All it takes is for a fly to enter the picture and all of us turn into five-year-olds, right? Everyone from the most dignified individual, the greatest of intellectuals and professors watching this hour and a half debate to process what's happening culturally and intellectually and scientifically around our country. For that two minutes, all we could do was focus on that fly, And even the greatest of PhDs realized they had a form of ADHD and couldn't help but focus on something that they shouldn't have focused on. But that is the beauty of life, isn't it? (laughs) The most unexpected things, the most random events show us things about ourselves that we soon learn to be true. And I think if you look at this entire year, it's almost felt like this entire year has been one giant unexpected situation. Right, an unending series of events that we didn't think would happen, and many of which challenge how we really do process and think of life. Right, Life as we know it has dramatically changed. The way that we go to school, the way that we interact with work and coworkers, the way we interact with friends and family, the way that we even go to get groceries, all of that has changed. And I think what we've seen throughout this entire year is that God has used that to show us what we truly do value. All right, when life is changed, when life is different, how we respond to those changes. And I think that's especially important with how we've understood our roles here as a local church. We know that much looks very different. The fact that we're here worshiping outside. The fact that a lot of the ways of how we've done our fellowships and gatherings and teachings and worship services has been dramatically altered. And through that, I think God shows us so much through these kinds of unexpected situations, what we really think and what we really value in the church. And the reason that we're going to be spending this morning looking at this very familiar text, a passage that many of us have read countless and multiple times, you've heard many sermons on it, is because my concern is that for a lot of us, As you see the events of today, the the dramatic changes that we've seen in how church often happens even in our country and state, that God has been revealing so many unhealthy tendencies of how we view the church, of how we understand our role here, what we should be doing on a daily and weekly and monthly basis. And so as we look at this very familiar passage, it's a reminder of what we should be focusing on. Now, regardless of what situation we're in, no matter what life looks like, no matter what the external factors may be, what should we be prioritizing? What should we be focusing on? And that is, what is our role in the church and how we relate to one another? And so we're going to be focusing just on two verses, but I'm going to actually start reading from verse 19 all the way until the end of the chapter. Because I want us to understand the big picture of what this author, this pastor and preacher is talking about. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is God's word. There's so much to unpack in this letter to the Hebrews. And this author is writing about so many different elements and points and principles that we should know as believers. But really, if you want to summarize this very jam-packed letter, the argument is this. That Jesus is better. Jesus is enough. Jesus is supreme. But when you contrast Jesus as the Son of God to all the different important figures and individuals of the Old Testament, there's no one that comes close. But that Christ is indeed greater than the angels. Christ is greater than Moses and Abraham. He's greater than all the entire priestly system of the Old Testament. And then when you're looking at the beginning of our section of verse 19 to verse 21, it's a summary of everything that we've heard so far in the letter. It's a reminder of who Jesus is, that he has finally accomplished atonement. He has finally given us true eternal life. And that those sacrifices that people had to do for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years of slaughtering animals and goats and bulls repeatedly, that whole system could now be considered finished. That we no longer had to deal with a temporary forgiveness for our sins. It had to be repeated annually. But in Christ, through the shedding of his blood, through him dying on the cross, our salvation is now final. There is no more work that must be done. But as Jesus said on the cross, it is now finished. And As you look from verse 22 to verse 25, the author is summarizing what we should be doing in response in light of who Christ is, in light of his finished work and atonement, in light of our permanent access to God, how should we respond? And he gives us three exhortations, which each start with that phrase, let us. That we must let us draw near to God in faith. That when we pray, when we approach the very throne room of God, we do it with confidence because of our faith. We can talk with God. We can pray knowing that he hears every single one of our words because we have Jesus who is our mediator. And secondly, he says, let us hold our confession of hope without unwavering. That is, we know that we have eternal life guaranteed. We know what it is that we have in Jesus Christ. We know where we are going. And that is our confession of hope that our future is secure. Our eternal life is guaranteed guaranteed. And that is something we hold with confidence and not with wavering. And in our verses here in verse 24 and verse 25, he says, let us exhort others toward love and Christ likeness. That is our role with one another. Not just how we understand God, not just how we understand our own faith, but how we understand our relationship to one another that we must exhort and call one another. And this whole summary of the letter so far is a beautiful interaction and mix as you see that we respond to the supremacy of Christ with faith, hope, and love. And here in our two verses, we are looking at what it means to respond with love, how we should understand our relationship to one another here, sitting out in the parking lot, here understanding our reaction with those who are in our midst, even at home and what it means for us to be the church of God and what it means to fellowship and the importance of gathering together. And so if you're taking notes, we're going to break this passage down in three very simple points. First off, looking at verse 24, you see the mandate, right? In light of Christ's supremacy, in light of who he is, his greatness, how should we respond? And here's the instruction given to us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And look at that word consider. It's the idea of intently thinking about or focusing on a person or a thing. You see the same word consider in Hebrews 3, 1. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. In other words, intently and purposely fix your gaze on Jesus Christ. Think about him, dwell on him, recognize him, make sure he's the apple of your eye, the one you are thinking about. And in the same way we are called here in Hebrews ten to consider or to focus on one another. It's really to fix your gaze and intent on other people. And I love the the CSB translation of this passage, which says, let us watch out for one another. In other words, we as the body of Christ, we as the church should be considering the well-being of each other. We should not be focusing on ourselves, but thinking about each other and one another and how they're doing. And it's kind of like if you've ever played a team sport at a high enough level, right? You're not just thinking about yourself and how you are individually moving or trying to score a goal or point or whatever it might be. But once you really understand how sports work, you're focusing, you're thinking about the rest of your team. And if you're doing it right, you're not having to focus on yourself, but how other people on your team are positioned, where they're at in relation to the goal or the end zone or anything like that. You're focusing on other people. And that's the kind of mentality that we are supposed to have as a church. that we're thinking about the well-being of one another. And the author goes on to say exactly how we focus or consider. He's saying consider or focus on one another to stir them up to love and good works. Right As we are considering, as we are fixing our gaze and attention on the body, it should be done in a way which is drawing people to grow in love that idea of agape, right? And as we know, love isn't simply an emotion. It's not simply just feeling nice about a person, but it's this desire to serve and to care. When you experience the agape love of God, how he has sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross when we did not deserve anything, we look and we seek for ways to love or to serve other people with no benefit to ourselves. That is the love that we grow into. And he says that we stir them up to good works as well. Right, just all manners of righteous and holy living, of wanting to be obedient to all the commands that God has given us. Right? And he's saying here that you must consider or focus your attention on people to stir them up to love and good works. And that word stir up, it actually has a very negative kind of feeling. Uh, many of you understand this, but a good translation for this word would be this word provoke. Right? Just as we provoke someone to anger, what do we mean by that? We're saying that by the way that you say things, the way that you interact with them, you're able to goad someone, you're able to provoke someone to anger or be the reason that they get angry. And many of us understand this because of of our families and close friends. As you get to know different people and individuals over time, especially those in your family, you know and they know the different buttons to press to, to provoke you. The things that you really don't want to hear that will automatically get you angry. The things that will automatically cause a reaction. And you know how to provoke that in the people that are close to you. For me growing up, um, maybe this is a lot of transparency, but I used to be called the, the Pillsbury Doughboy at one point. Right. I was a little bit on the, the heavier side. And, and so just as you see in the commercials, sometimes my family would be egging me on. They would poke me in the stomach and there would be the reaction that you see on the commercials. And they would get a laugh and just having fun and, and seeing my reactions to it. But every time that would happen, I would just get so angry inside, right? Because I knew I couldn't help it. I knew I had exactly the, the reaction, even the figure of the, the Pillsbury doughboy. And I knew it was true. But every time a family member would do that, it would just irk me on so much, right? It would would provoke me to anger. And that's the exact kind of force that this author has for us here. He's saying that you in your interactions with the church body and how you focus on them and how you think about them, you should actually provoke them to love and good works, right? And so again, I love the CSB translation. that says, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. But right? the reality is that every single person here, we all have blind spots. There are areas of our lives and sin issues and in worldview issues that we don't see that are clearly blind, and we need the, the exhortation, we need the calling out of other people to move us in directions that we would never go on ourselves. In other words, what the, the author and pastor is telling us here is that we must care for the spiritual well-being of one another. The spiritual growth is not just an individual's job, but it is your job. That there is really a responsibility. There there is a task that we have to be charging people, to be thinking about them and moving them towards love and growth and holiness and godliness. It's not just their responsibility. And really the mentality that you see in this one verse and this phrase is this heart posture that when we see the church, when we gather together, when you are building relationships with one another, saying, who do I need to prod towards love and good works? And who are the people I know? What are the things that I'm seeing in life where I can really encourage them and come alongside them to grow in the sense of love and godliness, knowing that they are never going to get there On their own. There are elements and areas of life where they are never going to grow as the Lord has called them because they just don't see it. And so I must be the one to poke them, to prod them, to provoke them to grow in that area. And when you understand what this task really is, as we've said so many times in this past year and years before, it really is an entire different mentality of what church life is. Right? And I've taught and I've preached on this a couple times, but, you know, it's been said that you need to say something seven times before it really clicks. And so at least three or four more sermons, I will bring this point to mind. That we need to understand our role in the church in a very different light than what most churches are. All right, listen to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25 and 26. Paul's speaking about what the church is and seeing it as a human body and that analogy of all the different parts. And he says, you must interact in a way, it says, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That when you see what the church of us and you see us as the local church, as Calvary Bible Church, we recognize that we're not just individual families who attend and you get to know different groups of people. But we need to have this reality understanding that we are all in this together. That we are indeed a collective that we have one common identity with one common goal, and that we recognize that the well-being of the person across the parking lot means just as much to, as the well-being as your closest family member or spouse. That there is this idea that we are all in this together. And Paul is saying if one person or one family is hurting, that affects you, that you should be hurting as well. And that if another individual or family is triumphing, if they're growing and the Lord is working mightily in their lives, that you too rejoice because you recognize that we are indeed all one family. And it's what you see in Ephesians 2, as we heard earlier this year, that we as a church are now a new kind of nation, citizens of a new kingdom, that we indeed see one another as blood relatives. And therefore that even if there's any kind of differences in a church, those don't matter because you understand who we are. Right? And then as I will continue to say, most churches are so good at doing the opposite, All right? Most churches are experts at drawing lines in the sand, at right? figuring out which people you want to associate with because they have the same values as you. And, and you know who you avoid and who to give dirty looks to because they don't think the same way and believe the same things, right? And that's so common over many churches. And I praise God that here in Calvary, there's been so much growth in this area over the last couple of years, But we need as a church body to continue to move in this direction of growth, to have a right understanding of who we are, to have a right viewpoint of what it means to be the body together, that we recognize that we are in this together And that we need to have this common understanding that that we exhort one another. We see one another. We fix our gaze on the well-being of each other for the well-being and love and growth and godliness. That is what it means to be a church. And this is what the pastor is exhorting us to do in this verse. And recognizing as well, why do we think about this, right? It's not this legalistic mentality that you just must think about each other. But he's saying in light of who Christ is, because Jesus is better, because Christ is sufficient, because you have the greatest possible salvation from the very Son of God, seek to grow in love for one another. Seek to consider the church because you are bound by Christ. He is your goal. He is your common point of unity. And so that's why we consider to stir. Now, as you move on to verse 25, he, he's going on from just this mandate instruction to really the, the method in verse 25. How exactly do we stir up one another to love and good works? I'm reading the passage again, it says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. I have told many of you that I was able to move into a new apartment here in Burbank just last week. Uh, It's a beautiful place over in downtown Burbank, and it's very uh, close to many amenities and close to the cheapest gas station here in the city. And so we're very intentional in trying to figure out where the best location would be. Uh, But as I've been purchasing a lot of the furniture, I purchased it from two places, which many of you know, uh, Ikea and Wayfair. And if you ever shopped at these places, you know that basically it's Lego furniture, right? You open these boxes, which seem very promising, and you realize that it spills out into thousands of tiny, small pieces. And it's literally in the same plastic wrapping that you find Legos in. And it's terrible because if you pull too hard on each of these little uh, wrapping containers, the entire thing will burst open, right? These tiny nails and, and screws will fly all over the wall and you have to make sure you're very careful and not stepping on it, which I almost did multiple times. What's helpful when you're building furniture like this in this very Lego sort of way is you're you're looking at the manual, right? And on the manual, you see a picture of what's supposed to be the final finished product, the thing that you're trying to build in its entirety. And as you start to flip through all those very intimidating pages with all sorts of instructions with zero words or context, you realize that they're giving you the the point-by-point, step-by-step instructions of what you're supposed to do to build that finished product. You follow it one after the other to finally get to what you saw in the very front of the picture. The the final piece of, of furniture that you're trying to build. And so when you're looking at at our text here, if you're looking at verse 24, that is really the the final finished product, the, the big picture of what we're being called to do, right? Stir one another, provoke one another to love and good works. And when you're looking here at verse 25, it's really two instructions of how you get there. Two things that you have to keep in mind in order to stir up, to provoke people to love and good works. And notice the first instruction is on the negative side. It's the command of what not to do. And he says this, don't neglect the gathering of the church, right? Don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. And when you're seeing those two words meet together, it's really one word in the Greek. And it's this general term for just assembly, for a gathering of the local body. Right? In those days, many of the churches were house churches of very small numbers, potentially 20 to 30, in some cases a little bit bigger. And those were all they had for the church. And so what the, the author and pastor is saying is when the, the church gathers together, don't neglect those gatherings. The, the church comes together for the purpose of a teaching of God's word, for, for mutual edification and for fellowship and, and encouraging people to grow in godliness and relating to what's going on in a biblical way. And when the church does gather together, when it assembles, make sure you don't neglect that. And so in our context, this idea of an assembly would include Sunday mornings like we're gathering now but it includes all sorts of other contexts where the body, where us as Calvary come together for the purpose of edification, like fellowship groups, like those Sunday luncheons who talk about life in a Christian way, like small groups wanting to share the, the difficulties of life, all of these different ways that we come together for fellowship. But when you hear this term of don't neglect the assembly, I think a lot of people often have misunderstandings of what this really is. All right, some people take this as very much a command, which it's not truly in the, the deepest sense. And they say, okay, well, what he's saying here is you cannot miss a single Sunday gathering, right? If the church gathers on Sunday, you must be there or you're in some kind of deep, dark sin. That's not what, what this phrase is saying. It's also not saying that we were in sin because we had a period of time where we didn't gather physically because of COVID, right? That's not what this instruction is talking about. The key words that you should look at here are the words neglect and the word habit, right? What was the true issue going on in this church here? What was the the pastor trying to warn his people about? Is that they were neglecting the gathering of the church, They had made a habit of not being together with God's people. In other words, what he's saying here is that there were some people who were willfully choosing to ignore the church gatherings. It wasn't a priority for them. It wasn't something that they said, we need to make sure we're really there. But as life would go on, as difficulties arose, the church began to slowly drift away from what was the important focus they had. And as you go through this entire letter, you see all the difficulties that they experienced, some of which I had read earlier, that they as a church, they as God's people, they experienced various forms of persecution. And there were people who were actually in prison for the sake of their faith. And prison back in that day was not even like what we have here where you're basically provided a hotel room with, with food and lodging. But prisons in that day meant that oftentimes the only way you would be cared for was if people outside the prisons brought you food. And so most of the time, if you were to be sent to a prison, that could be a death sentence in certain cities and areas. And so many of these believers were being thrown in prison for their faith. They weren't being treated well. Christianity, this idea of following after Christ was understood to be a perversion of Judaism, right? The the Old Testament belief of the Jews, and they were seen as almost apostates and people doing these weird sort of traditions. They weren't understood by society. And because of all of these hardships, because of of their lack of understanding and the afflictions they experienced, they started to become apathetic. They started to become indifferent, They started to become sluggish in their faith. They started to ignore the gatherings of the church. They they lost their love for Christ. They began to just focus on their situations and the hardships and everything that was going on. And the result of that is many of them were neglecting the gathering of the church. That though the church indeed was coming together because they had been thrown in prison or because their friends had been thrown in prison, because they were not being accepted by society. They just didn't care. And so that was the the thing that really motivated the warning and instruction here of not neglecting the gathering together because of the realities of, of the persecutions and hardships. But even now, when you think about what we're going through in 2020, there are other things which are also causing many of us to neglect what the physical gathering is supposed to be. And I just want to give you two examples of what some of these things might be. Uh, one of them is what I'm going to call the, the Calvary movie cinema experience. Uh, there are people who love watching movies. You love streaming things online and many movie theaters are closed. And so we're in this process of streaming everything. And there are many individuals who have gotten to the place in this year with everything that's happened, where they're perfectly fine doing nothing but watching church at home. Right? And I want to be careful here because there are many people who have very legitimate reasons. Right? There is people who have very much health concerns of wanting to be wise about uh, promoting their own physical well-being. There are people that have very legitimate fears about what's going on. There are many people who want to be here, but young families are still in the process of figuring out how to bring their kids together, not losing them on the other side of the street. And there are people who have very much legitimate reasons for staying home and worshiping there. But the grave concern that many of us leaders have is that as we're continuing on this year, as we've moved away from being in person for a while, there are many people as well that love being at home. People to where they don't have legitimate health concerns, and yet they love the idea they've gotten comfortable in being there. That they've always wanted to not talk to other people. They've always wanted to just sit off on the top of the balcony, ignore the rest of the world. And now COVID has become the final perfect excuse to do that to stream church and what they say is guilt-free, to not worry about fellowship because they are good just on their own. And if that's you, I am concerned for you. This author and pastor would be concerned for you because it's, it's revealing of a low view of what the church actually is, that you don't understand the importance of being together in the body, that you don't care about stirring up people. You're not thinking about others. You're actually thinking about yourself. And so if that's you, you must heed the warning that this pastor is giving here to understand the importance of the church. And that, yes, there are people who have young kids, and at times that can be a reason for staying home, but for many others, that becomes a crutch as well. Saying, yes, it can take effort, and yes, it is possible, but I would rather just be comfortable in this environment here, and that can be a very dangerous place to be. If you don't see the importance of the church gathering, you don't want to be with God's people. In some cases, that's people who are attending a movie experience, Calvary movie cinemas. But there's also a second group, which I think is very common here in 2020 as well. And that's what one individual, not myself, called Calvary Maskless Church. And those are people who say that they love the local church, that they identify as being here. But because of certain political ideologies, because of ways that they understand politics in our country, they refuse to come if there's any kind of health things, right? And so if you say that you have to wear a mask, if you're saying you're going to have church outdoors, we don't consider that to really be church, We don't really consider that to be faithful. It's what God has called us to do. That is not church, and so I will not go. And unfortunately, what that is showing or exposing in this unique situation is the reality of what you truly love, that people don't have a love of God as their greatest thing. They don't understand the true importance of fellowshipping and gathering together, but they will only fellowship and gather on their terms. And ultimately, what it is is a love of culture, love of some kind of secular political ideology, love of personal autonomy, and putting those things over what God has called us to do to the point where you would be willing to sacrifice the body because of something in front of your face. And there's many other examples of different groups of people who wouldn't be applying what this pastor has called them to do. But that's the warning that we are hearing here. This pastor is saying, don't neglect the assembling of church. Don't run away for whatever the reasons may be. Don't fall into sluggishness and timidity and apathy, but make sure you are trying to gather together. And that's really the the second part of this instruction that he's giving here. He's saying, instead of forsaking the assembly, instead of being the kind of person that runs away, make sure you gather to encourage one another. And this is really the instructions of how we're able to stir one another to love and good works. When you see that instruction to encourage, it's that word parakaleo. And that's a word that has such a broad range of usage. At times it's saying to come alongside a person that's struggling, to encourage them in the faith, to help them when they are discouraged, to be the one who comes alongside them as a helper, as the Holy Spirit has described But this word of pericoleo can also be used for the idea of a rebuke or a warning or an admonishment. When a person is being heavy headed, when they're not being teachable, when they're being stubborn and you are coming and bringing the heat and fire saying, you are sinning. You are not listening to the word of God. You are putting up your own idols in place of him. You must repent. And so this idea of encouraging, when he says you must encourage one another, can really be translated as exhort one another. Say whatever needs to be said. There are all different kinds of people and all different kinds of situations and all different kinds of contexts and responses. And whatever it might be, exhort them. Tell them what they need to hear that, that that comes from God's truth. And you hear the translation of this in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, but parakaleo one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For because of the reality of sin, Because of the reality of our prideful hearts, naturally being hardened, naturally being blind, and growing in the hardness of heart, make sure to exhort one another. Don't neglect the gatherings. Don't be those people that run away into apathy, but come, be together, see one another so you can admonish and encourage and exhort And so what this is saying for us as a local church is that we need to be very intentional in our relationships and our friendships. One of the big dangers that I see in many American churches and many churches in general is we do things like we will go to church. You will be connected to each other's lives. But when it comes to the nitty gritty, when it comes to real conversations and those real relationships, they look nothing different than a secular relationship. They're not practicing the things that God has called us to do. And so when you think about what it means to exhort or to admonish or to encourage, it's this idea of being real in our conversations. Think about this just for a moment. When was the last time in one of your relationships with a family member here or, or a person in our body, have you had to exhort them or call out sin? Where you realize that the way that they were interacting with other people, the way that they responded to what's happening in the larger society was unhealthy or toxic or unbiblical, and you had to lovingly come alongside them and point at their flaws. And when was the last time someone did that for you? Where one of your brothers or sisters in the church saw something that you were doing and said, this is wrong, this is unwise, this is foolish, you need to think or act differently. Do you have those kinds of relationships where people are truly able to speak into your life? And do you have the kind of humility to where you are willing to listen when someone actually speaks? That you don't respond with just saying how judgmental of them, but even if they are being judgmental and prideful, you are still willing to hear and say, maybe God is still speaking truth to me. Because those are the kinds of relationships that this pastor is telling us to have. This is what he's saying by don't neglect the gathering of the church, but make sure you are exhorting each other to have these types of relationships and conversations where you are speaking the truth into each other's lives. Because I guarantee you, we have blind spots. There are areas where every single one of us is not perfect and we need other people to show us what those are. We won't see them on our own and we need the importance of other people. And so I ask you this, are you cultivating those kinds of relationships with the church body? Not just attending fellowship groups, not just coming to the events, but are you building those kinds of relationships in the church to where you can really speak the truth into each other's lives? Where you can call out and be called out Because so oftentimes when you look at churches, you do all the right religious things. You gather and you have these times of fellowship, but it misses out on what the church is really called to be. That in order to stir up people to love and good works, we must exhort. And it requires being with God's people in all the different ways that it happens as the local church. And as we come to the, the end of this passage, this very last phrase of verse 25 The author closes with a warning. He's trying to say that there's very much an urgency behind gathering and exhorting one another. Read with me again, verse 25. He says, not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting the assembly of the church as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We must gather with this urgency, knowing that the day of the Lord is coming. And is this great understanding from the Old Testament of this day, uh, the end of all things, the end of time, the, the cataclysmic eschaton, the reality that there is a day of judgment and salvation coming where the Lord will bring all things to bear. And for the believer, for the person that was a follower of God, the day of the Lord was a reminder to excel still more, that we know that this life is coming to an end, that he is coming back quickly. And so we must be fervent in our obedience to God. And so you hear in 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore. And he gives a whole list of exhortations. Because God is returning, live faithfully, live boldly, live strivingly. And this is the same thing here in Hebrews 10. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That because you know God is returning, you must be faithful, faithful. But this idea of the Lord's return coming, the day of the Lord, was also a warning. And I I read the whole thing earlier, but I'm just going to read the small part next. It's in verse 26 and 27. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And on and on it goes. And what the pastor there is saying is the warning of apostasy. That there are those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, those who believe they're saved, think they're saved, but as time goes on, as different things unfold, they will prove themselves that they were never truly a believer. They think or they thought that they were saved, but as things come up, as trials envelop their life, they show that they were never truly knowing God. And this is part of what Jesus was warning us in in Mark chapter four, the the parable of the four soils. That you have the rocky soil, the person that sprouts up briefly, that thinks they're saved, they are joyful. But then when persecution and hard times come, they, they run away from the faith. Or the thorny soil, the person who thinks that they are saved, but as the cares and riches of the world envelop their life, they run away from the Lord because they never really loved him. And the reality of apostasy of a person who runs away from the faith is many people, yes, they realize they're faking it all along, but many people genuinely think they're on the right path. Many people genuinely think they are following after the Lord until they actually drift away. And drift is one of the key themes of this entire letter. As you go through, and I encourage you to read this book later on, time and time again, he is warning them against apostasy. He says the apostates are those who drift away subtly in Hebrews 2. They are those in Hebrews 3 who are hardened by their sin and their hearts grow more and more cold over time. He says in Hebrews chapter 5, they are those who grow dull of hearing. They're not listening to the counsel and the word of God. There are those in Hebrews chapter 12 who are lax in addressing relational conflict and addressing sin in their lives. And in all these warnings, what the preacher is saying is be Careful, don't drift, guard yourself because you may actually show yourself to be an apostate. That though you think you were saved, you were never truly saved and your life will surely show that. And our passage here in Hebrews 10 is one of these warnings. He's saying, don't neglect the fellowship. Don't make a habit of ignoring the church gatherings. Because if you do, if you continue an unrepentant sin, if you continue the hardness of our heart, you may show to actually be under the judgment of God. And your judgment will be far greater because you've known the truth, because you gather with the church, because you know the teaching of God's word, and you will face the greatest possible judgment. And so really in this encouragement to gather with the church, it's a warning as well. If you are not, if you are not seeking to be with the church, if you are drifting away into unrepentant sin, be warned because you may not actually be saved. You may prove yourself to be under the judgment of God. And it all starts with a subtle lack of attendance. It's a subtle drift away. It's a very casual sort of apathy towards the gathering of God's church and you must be warned of that. And so if you don't want to be with God's people, there's no desire. You need to assess your heart and guard yourself to see if you may be one of these people that this author is talking about throughout the book. But you may also be saved and even so this warning is still for you. And I don't want you to think that this author is saying that you can lose salvation. He's not saying that you must, you know, do certain things, but you can eventually lose it. Not at all. Are you hear in many passages about the assurance of our salvation? Are you hear in John ten twenty eight? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right, and Jesus saying that God Himself, He is the one who holds us in His hand; that we cannot lose our salvation because He Himself safeguards it. And if you are a need a believer, we have assurance that we know that we are our, that we are going to be saved until the end. But the Bible has so many passages which also tell us to persevere in the faith. That is, that yes, we can have an assurance because it is safeguarded by God. But that is not an excuse to be lax. But we must press on. Though we know that we are running a race and we will reach it to the end, we must still run the race. We must persevere. And so you hear in Hebrews 3.13, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence to the end. Alright, what is the proof of faith? It is the person who knows the truths of God, but you will know it by by your ability to stay whole until the end. And it's God who will safeguard that for you. And you hear in, in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, though I know you are saved, and there are many passages where he says, I know that you are indeed saved, you must strive. You must not become lax. You must not take it easy, but you must excel still more. Make sure you cling on to the truths of what the church is. Make sure you gather, make sure you exhort, make sure you don't go away because this is what we are called to do. And that we, though we have an assurance of faith, we must guard ourselves and guard one another. And that God actually uses the exhortations of the church the gatherings of the church to spur us on in our faith. An analogy that's been used oftentimes is if you've ever been to the National Redwood Forest, those giant trees that can grow hundreds of feet tall. And if you've been there, you realize how small we really are, how massive some of these trees can be. In fact, some of them are so giant that people have had to literally carve holes in them to make way for the roads because of how large they are. It's an amazing experience to see. But what a lot of people don't understand about these trees is that for their size, their roots are actually fairly fit. They actually don't go down that deep for how large those trees are. But the reason that these forests stay the way that they do, amidst the winds, amidst everything that's going on, is all of these very tiny roots actually interlock together. Though individually the trees will will falter, though they are very small and thin, because of all the other trees around them, as they bind together, the trees remain steadfast against the winds. The barrage of whatever forces may be. And I think that's a fitting analogy for what the church is. That we recognize that in Christ, our faith is secure. It is safeguarded by God himself. And yet God uses his church. He uses the admonishments and exhortations of our brothers and sisters in Christ to keep us focused on him to draw another back to Him when we are fading away, when we are drifting away. And that is the role. That is the beauty of the church body. And that is why we can't neglect fellowship. So why is the church so important? Why is gathering together so critical for our ability to practice what God has called us to do? It's because God uses us broken vessels, imperfect people to motivate one another, to convict others in who he is, to continue on in Christ's likeness, to continue on with him being the forefront of our minds. And that is why we must gather. And in closing, I just want to answer a question, a common concern that people have, right? How much is too much? What's the balance between simple apathy and legalism about being part of God's church? It's a very valid question. And I love what H.B. Charles says about our role in the church. Here's what he says. If you can miss church without being missed at church, something is missing. And if you can miss church without missing church, something is missing. Life circumstances will come up. There will be factors in lives which keep people at home, which will prevent us from being able to be together. But the question is, do we desire it? Do we love the church? Do we want to be together? Do we have the desire to meet so we can stir other people up? And do we realize that our focus should not be in ourselves, but truly on the well-being of others? And do we long for that? And if you can answer the question, yes then there will be times where you cannot gather together, but you will still have the right heart that this author and this passage is asking us to do because we must long to gather together. And as we're going to this next phase of the fall with so many unknowns, that's why we as a collective church have made the decision that our fellowship groups will be very intentional over these next couple of weeks and months to be together. And that's going to look different for every single one of our fellowship groups. So we've made a very collective and very informed decision to say we must be the people of God. And so I encourage you, if you're not being involved in a fellowship group, make sure you are. Seek for ways to be together because we as a church are looking for ways to be the church, to fellowship, to exhort each other in a way that still follows all the things that we need to follow. And so be connected. Be connected. Seek for ways to be in one another's lives and our church fellowship groups are such a key way to do this. But lastly, I'll say this in closing. Don't miss the big picture. Why does this preacher bring up the church? Why does he encourage with the importance of gathering and exhorting one another? Because of Christ. It's because Jesus is supreme. It is because we have a salvation that is guaranteed uh, and a knowledge of where we are going that will never fade away. We are covered by this very blood of the Son of God. And because of what we have, we must gather. Let us encourage ourselves in the faith. Let us hold on to the hope of our assurance of eternal life. And may we gather and call one another to love and good works because Jesus is better. Do you really believe that Jesus is? Do you have a right view of the son of God? Do you love him? Do you adore him? Do you worship him? Like we've been singing all along because that is why we are the church. That's why we are doing all these crazy things to still be together physically because we believe in Jesus Christ. And even as we close our service together in a song, as we continue to fellowship here even outside and in ways throughout the week, we do this because we love our Savior. We know what he's brought us in as a family of God. And that's what we're gonna do even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we love you for who you are and how you send Jesus Christ, your son, who is indeed greater than the angels, greater than Melchizedek, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than all the Old Testament system to die on a cross for our sins. And that because of what salvation is, because we have the gospel, we press on in this life. And so I pray, Lord, for all of us, especially for the weak and the failing. Those whose true hearts and idols have been exposed by the realities of this year, that you would so stir them to seek after the church body and they would not allow their own personal idols to be something that hinders them from what you've called them to do. And that you would allow all of us who are here as your local church to be devoted to one another, to be devoted in fellowship and exhortation that we may practice what you have called us to do as your church. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name.